start again. Today we have our, uh, we start our summer talk series on uh, four questions and how that originated was is we got the congregation to go out there perhaps about September, October last year and say, hey, just catch up with your friends, catch up with the people where you post your letters, catch up with the people where you fill up with petrol, where you do your shopping and ask them if you could ask God one question, one question about life in this world we live in, what would that be? We got a number of responses back from that question and then we sort of compiled them to the four most popular questions. And uh, that's what we've come up with uh, to get to where we are today. So today's talk is about what is our purpose in life. A lot of people were talking about the beginning and what's life all about and whatnot. Next week's talk is about why do bad things happen to good people. There's a lot of questions there about why so much suffering in this world that we live in, why so much pain or devastation and grief in this world we live in. Uh, next talk was what happens to us after we die. I think that's a massive question. People are wondering about that. You know, when I breathe my last, is that it? What happens? That's the third one. And then the fourth question uh, we got, which seemed to be fairly popular as well, is, you know, uh, one God or are there many? One God or are there many? So we'll be looking at that over the next four weeks. Uh, today, though, we're going to start the first one. What is our purpose in life? And to do that, I thought I might just to get us sort of thinking a little bit about that. We're going to show a YouTube video, which some of you may be familiar with. So uh, we'll play that now. You can turn the lights off more. Hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings got so fed up with the constant bickering about the meaning of life that they commissioned two of their brightest and best to design and build a stupendous supercomputer to calculate the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Oh, these things. We want you to tell us the answer. The answer to what? The answer to life. Return to this place in exactly seven and a half million years. So the planet's hard, isn't it? That's right. They go back, what, seven and a half million years later? That's right. They do. complexity that life itself will form part of its operational matrix. 
and you yourselves shall take on new, more primitive forms and go down into the computer to navigate its 10 million year program. I shall design this computer for you and it shall be called... Well, you can turn that back on, mate. So perhaps a bit of a light-hearted uh, look there at the uh, the big question. But um, for those who are familiar, that's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy stuff from quite a few years ago. But what it does, it highlights that's what every that's what's on people's mind. That's like that is the question. That is the thing. What is this? Uh, what is this purpose of life all about? It's a question that's been around as long as human history. As long as man has been on this earth, that question has been there. It's been a question that's been thought of by billions and billions of people uh, that have walked the face of this earth. We are fascinated by it. What am I here for? What's this life all about? What's this world all about? As we just saw in that sort of light-hearted one, Deep Thought was the name of that computer. After seven and a half million years, worked out the answer was 42. I don't think any of us think the meaning of life here is 42, but again, it shows you it was something there that was on people's minds and people are thinking about this question. Some of the deepest thinkers in our world that we live in have thought long and hard over this question. Philosophers who have just tried to think about life in this large picture, this large sort of sphere of influence, have come up with really nothing other or any confident answer to this meaning of life. Perhaps some may have said this, uh, by the life I live, I hope to leave this world in a better place than when I first arrived. Maybe that's what some people come up with. That's my purpose in life. By the life that I live, that somehow when I leave this earth, my life has, has contributed to making this world a better place. Even if I think about that, though, I think to all the struggling, the striving, the achieving, the joy, the pain, the loss, the happiness, the sadness, does that really all amount to just trying to leave the world a better place. Even if that was perhaps what we thought it could be as the meaning of life, I think that still leaves us a bit empty. It still doesn't give us a clear direction for what is the real purpose of life. Just maybe perhaps to leave it as a better world than when we first arrived. So how do we tackle this age-old question I think every person at some point in their life thinks about or begins to dwell upon in their mind? I believe the best way and really the only way to answer this question properly about what is our purpose in life is to really ask ourselves and to think about where have we come from? What's the beginning? What's the start? Where have I come from? Where did everything start? What is the origin or the beginning point of life? Because I believe if we understand where everything has started from, at the beginning point, we can then actually navigate our way through to understanding what our purpose in this life for is if we understand our starting point or where we originated from. So where did it all start will help us to lead to what is our purpose in life. And when I think about this, there's two points of view when we consider where did life start? Where did it originate from? Where was the beginning? Two points of view. One point of view is the natural world view. And that natural worldview that we think about here is more one based on science. Science can explain where we've come from. Science can fill in the gaps 
of what we are trying to work out where is the beginning point. That's the natural worldview. We'll be taking um, knowledge that is gained by gifted, wise people and they begin to form in their, in their minds this idea of where life possibly began. That's the natural worldview. Another worldview or a second worldview that we can think about here is a God-centred worldview. It's a view upon this world in its entirety, including the universe, all that we can see and know about, that completely revolves around God as the centre of this worldview. A God who sovereignly creates everything and gives it its life. So let's look at these two worldviews here and actually begin to sort of stack them up against each other to help us get to a start point that will help us then lead to a purposeful life that we choose that we are here to live. So let's start with first the natural or the scientific worldview that tells us about this world and where it started. Now it's not too difficult to do this and when I say that... um, I'm not going to give a detailed scientific explanation because, I mean, I don't have a mind like the scientists that can wrap myself around everything they're thinking about. But it's not too difficult to get onto Google and actually start to type in a few things and you can get an idea here of what some of the scientific or natural worldviews are that um, try and put a theory into place of where the start point was. Here's one of them. Microbes. Microbes. Some scientists believe that life has started with microbes being formed. These microbes have come together and then over millions of years they've evolved into the life we see on the planet today. Not a detailed explanation, but it's more a big statement of what some people believe in the scientific world that microbes have come together. Another view is this, lightning sparks. Some believe, well-known scientists believe that lightning strikes in the upper universe have caused amino acids and sugars to form. I'm not going to try and explain what amino acids are because I don't know what they are. But scientists believe this and they believe these have come together and they have given cause for life and then its evolutionary process is from there to now where we are. That is another theory that um, the natural worldview or scientists believe. Another one is molecules. Some believe that life originated as molecules met for the first time on clay substance. Some sort of clay substance, these molecules somehow came together and they met and out of this has spawned life as we know it today and where it's evolved to. Another one is called panspermia. Panspermia is a theory that again molecules were transported from outer space on meteorites that landed on earth together and then these molecules have joined together to give us this life as we see it today. It's another natural worldview or scientific um, possible theory of how life has started. Here's one you may have heard of as well, and there's even a TV show named after it, and a lot of you are going to say straight away, yep, I know what he's going to say next. Big Bang Theory. Some Some scientists believe that there was a huge explosion in the universe, and out of the energy that was created from the explosion and the coming together of light with this energy... This has combined over millions of years to produce produce life as we know it today. Now, again, these are big sort of summarising statements of some of those theories, but that's what some scientists believe is a possible theory for how life began or how life started. Just a handful of those there, and you can probably go and find a stack of other ones, but they are some of the more perhaps popular theories in a natural worldview or a scientific understanding of how life began. They're not definite statements though. If, if you read through that, 
um, on those individually and take a long time to read some of what they put behind it. There's nothing definite what they say when they put those theories together or put those uh, explanations together. They're not a definite statement. It's not clear. It's not a confident, unified approach amongst even all the scientists. They have many and varied ways, but they're not confident when they come together in asserting what they say. Some of them, even Richard Dawkins, and a man of you, some of you may know, he's a very strong advocate for the scientific approach to the world and uh, to say hey, it's come in some sort of scientific way. He had this to say in an interview with a man by the name of Ben Stein many years ago on a DVD that was produced about this. Ben Stein, the interviewer, asks Richard Dawkins, he says, where does life begin? Richard, where does life begin? You might have this theory of molecules or microbes or panspermia or this, but where does it begin? What's the start point? Richard Dawkins, on this DVD, responds to this way, to that question of Ben Stein's. He actually says, actually, no idea. Actually, no idea. Perhaps life was delivered to us from highly evolved aliens, extraterrestrials. That was what Richard Dawkins said in trying to respond to the question of where does life originate from. Here's another one. Robin Williams, who hosts the scientific show on the ABC, dedicated a whole show to the origins, to the question of the origins of the universe. Like, where did it start? Where did it all begin? And the closing comments at the end of this show uh, gives us, I think, a lot of insight into understanding how the scientific views the beginning of life, the beginning of this universe, or the beginning of everything that we can see. And here are the closing comments uh, to this uh, show that was dedicated with all these various views, these natural worldviews or scientific understandings of where life began, where it originated from. Here's the closing comments. So the debate rages on. Over the past few decades, scientists have edged closer to understanding the origin of life, but there is still some way to go. Which is probably why when Robin Williams, the host of the show asked Nick Lane, an evolutionary biochemist from the University of London, the origins of life. He said, what was here in the beginning? What do you think started it all? Nick Lane, the evolutionary biochemist, thinks for a moment, and he says, ah, yes, we have no idea, is the bottom line. We still don't know. If natural science is completely honest, this is the answer that they will come up with. The bottom line is we have no idea where life began. Now, these are brilliant men and women, brilliant in their fields of science who can wrap their minds around many, many things. They are far more intelligent than me and far more wise than me and brighter than me in many, many ways. They can make incredible discoveries about life, about many things, many things. And I have the absolute... Uh, utmost admiration and respect for the abilities and the gifts they have to think through really difficult things. But when it comes to the beginning of the universe, when it comes to the beginning of life, when it comes to the start point of everything, they honestly have to say, we have no conclusive idea. We don't know. From a natural worldview or a scientific worldview, that is where they will come from. And that is a missing vital link when you're trying to discover your purpose in life. If you don't know the start point, if you don't know where it started or where everything originated from, 
It's like this giant central piece of the jigsaw puzzle is just pulled right out and you cannot connect anything else with it because you're missing this vital point. Where did it start? Where was life beginning at its first stages? That's the scientific or the natural world view as many may think that or um, possibly go in that direction. But there's another world view. Another worldview, and this is the Christian perspective. This perspective of a worldview holds God right in the middle of everything. God is like this central piece of the jigsaw puzzle that fits in the middle, and everything is fits in and around God right in the center. Now, for Christians, when we understand about God, we know that from the Bible. We unashamedly say that here at Exchange Church, we love the Bible. It's here where we discover who God is, and it's here where God actually clearly speaks to us out of his word. We build our life upon the truths that come out of the Bible. Let me just say perhaps a couple of things about this Bible. The Bible is probably is the most authentic and consistent piece of literature of all time. Of the billions and billions of books that have been produced over the course of history, the Bible remains the most solidly reliable book of all time. Uh, The Bible, as we have it here, has been probably the most attacked book of all time. (coughs) The book that's tried to be the most discredited of all time. All types of people have tried to pull this book down and pull it apart and prove that it's wrong. Let me just give you a few facts about the Bible to help us have some confidence and some reliability here in this most authentic and consistent piece of literature of all time. The Bible itself has more than 20,000 manuscripts. And when I say the word manuscript, that is copies of the original writings of these books. There's 66 books that make up this Bible, and there's more than 20,000 manuscripts that is copies of the original writings of this book. When we think about that, that gives us a reliable point to understand that the book is true. The book holds together. Because when we look at those 20,000 or more manuscripts, there's no real variation between them, other than maybe a few little punctuation errors here and there, or maybe the odd spelling mistake in the words. But the core of the message and the core of the truth in all of those manuscripts say the same thing. And some of those manuscripts, copies of the original writings are less than 100 years from when the original writings took place. So there's a lot of evidence that stands behind to say this is a reliable, authentic book that we can take as absolutely true. Now, a comparison for that, for anybody who's a historian buff, uh, there's a book by Julius Caesar called The Gallic Wars, which is like a a compendium of all the um, conquests of the Roman Empire uh, of uh, of the time of Julius Caesar. Now, that's going back about 2,100 years, that book was compiled, or those notes were recorded uh, by Julius Caesar and his writers at 100 BC. Okay, Of that book, which most historians say, hey, this is a book we regard as truth. This is a book that we just don't doubt. This is a book we, we think is absolutely authentic. Of that book, there's only 10 manuscripts. Of the Bible, there's 20,000 manuscripts. And the earliest copies of the Gaelic Wars manuscripts are 1,000 years after the original documents. Now, again, I say some of these things because it just helps to put some evidence behind of the reliability and the authenticity of this uh, incredible book that has stood the test of ages. The Bible is authentic and totally reliable. 
The Bible's written over 1,600 years across 60 generations by 40-plus authors from different walks of life, different places, different moods, different continents, three languages, writing on hundreds of different subjects. And yet when you pull all of that together, different languages, different continents, different walks of life over all that time period, when you pull all of that together, this book is written in absolute harmony. There is no contradictions between the writers. There is one theme that runs throughout the Bible when all these writers across all those different time frames are pulled together. Every writer, every writing in this Bible points to a sovereign God, a divine sovereign being who has created everything. Every writer and every writing points to a God who is a creator God. So the evidence also of this Bible today is not just facts and figures, which I can give you, which is good. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But the evidence also of this Bible today is the evidence of billions and billions and billions of lives that are changed and transformed by the truth that is contained in this book. There are people today sitting right here who can testify, hey, I read this Bible, the truth was revealed into my heart and my mind, and I am a changed person. I am a transformed person. That is life experience, life testimony to the reliability and the power that's in this book today. The Bible is authentic and the Bible is totally reliable. Totally reliable. So with total confidence, total confidence, I can turn to the Bible here and it can guide me to the beginnings of life. It can guide me to the start point and then then from there it can guide me to what my purpose in life is as I think about that. God created everything. As all these writers pointed to, a sovereign God who is a divine creator. And we see that in the very first pictures, the very first verse of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, 1. Hayden's beat me too, haven't you, mate? Hold on. Genesis 1, 1. It says there, and you can't get any mistakes from this, in the beginning. We're looking for a start point. We're looking for somewhere where everything originated from. Where's the start point? Here it is, right at the start of the very first chapter and the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no sort of maybes, ifs, buts about that statement. That is a very clear, definite statement. It's not lacking any confidence at all. It's very clear. It says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. So we have a definite starting point. When life dawned, it was God who created it all. It was God who had spoken into existence. It was God who has put intelligent design into this order of this world that we see about us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, for me, I can perhaps just sit there and marvel at that passage for a long, long time. Because when I look at this incredibly complex and beautiful world around about me, it just speaks of a divine, sovereign creator. I don't know if you've done any sort of looking at DVDs or videos of the the under-the-sea life in this world. It is fascinating when you see this world that lives under the sea, or in the sea, under the surface line of the water. It's fascinating. The creativity of the animal life 
fish species, coral, whatever you want to call it. It is just fascinating. There's a show coming on Channel 9, I think it's, it's Planet Earth, I think I've seen some ads for it. Um, I don't agree with the philosophy of it, but if you just want to look at some absolute pictures of the glory of God in creation, watch that show. It is just absolutely fascinating. You can't help but be blown away by the creative genius who has put this complex, beautiful world together in so many incredible ways. Here's one to think about. As we think about the complexity and uh, the order and the intelligent design that goes into this world that we live in, think about your eye. You can't see it unless you look into a mirror and you can't really see the working parts in the eye. But if we think about the eye, here's some facts about the human eye. The human eye contains 107 million cells. I'm not sure how those cells look, but they're obviously pretty small if it's 107 million. But there's 107 million cells in the human eye. Did you know that in your eye there are more than 2 million working parts? There are 2 million parts in your eyeball that come together to help you to see. That's ridiculous, isn't it? That is totally ridiculous. Not because God's ridiculous. But you can't comprehend that. Who could ever put 2 million parts together to make a human eye see something? Of all the whiz-bang cameras, we have some really sensational cameras today that are just megapixels and the whole box and dice and they can just take fantastic photos. Of all the whiz-bang cameras in the world that we have today, there is not one camera designed by man with a lens that can work anywhere near as quick as the human eye. We have some great cameras there that they can just push buttons and they just take great photos. But they cannot work as well as the human eye in focusing on something or as quick as the human eye focus. Just think about it. You can look around this room, you can focus on that, and you focus on this and focus on that. The camera sort of, it would be just trailing behind you. It would not keep up with your eye. It just testifies to this incredible creator who's made us with such complexity and such order that it just boggles the mind when you think about that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, as the Bible tells us. It just speaks about a creator God. Who else could put that together? Some intelligent divine being does it, and he doesn't take millions of years to think about that. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that he spoke this universe into existence by a single word. God blows our minds when we think about that in the sense of God as our creator. So we have a start point. We have a beginning. We have a place where we can put, as it were, a line in the sand for human history. We are created by God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when we begin to see that, it then helps us to begin to think about, okay, what's our purpose in life then? Okay, we've got a start point here. So we need to dig a little bit deeper here as we put this together and think about this purpose for life. How has God made us? And how do we differ from the world around about us? If we explore this, it'll help us to see, again, uh, our purpose in life. And again, the Bible will help us to see how we are made and how we differ from the world that is around about us. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27 tells us this. Then God said, let us make man, that's you and I, man, mankind, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Key words there. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. Simply here the Bible tells us that we human beings, man, mankind, are made in the image or likeness of God. Very important that we sort of get a bit of a grasp of these two words here. This will help point us towards purpose. In this creation account here, as we think about image and likeness, God has taken a keen interest in the creation of man. He's done something extra special or different here about the creation of man. We, mankind, as totally distinct from the rest of the created world around about us, are made like God in the likeness of God, in the image of God. God says that he's created the male, a mankind, male and female, as it were, to be image bearers, to bear the image of God. Made in the likeness or in the image of God. We bear God's image, we bear the likeness of God. Now you might say, well, how does that look? You know, is, is it sort of um, uh, you know, some sort of physical thing? or What do you mean is it? Do I look like God or how do I bear this image or how do I bear this likeness of God? Here's just a few we'll quickly touch on to help us see this and that will help us to make a distinction uh, from mankind as us as, as opposed to the rest of creation that's around about us. We are moral beings. Humanity, male and female, man, mankind, we are moral beings who know right from wrong. We know that to murder is wrong. We know that to steal is wrong. We know that theft is wrong. We know that jealousy is wrong. We know all those things are wrong. There's something within us called our conscience that bears witness to us. We do something wrong. As distinct from animals, we were on the bay last week with the friends of ours in the boat and uh, we were talking about sharks who go and bite people in the water and kill them. shark just does that for food. It doesn't know that murder is wrong. It just goes and kills someone who's swimming in the ocean. It has no conscience or no moral guidance or compass whatsoever to say that's right or wrong. But we are moral beings. We know, hey, you kill somebody, you've done something wrong. We are moral beings. That is the likeness to God. We know right from wrong. We're spiritual beings. We are. We are spiritual beings. Every single person sitting in here today worships something. Particularly when it comes to the aspect of God... There's a point where we can connect with God in a spiritual sense. Although we don't see God or feel God in a sort of dimensional aspect of feeling, touching, seeing, smelling, hearing type thing, but we still feel connected with God to the point where we can just pray, like I prayed earlier there before. We can pray. We have this spiritual connection with God. Now, you will never see an animal stopping to pray. It's not a spiritual being. It doesn't have that connection with God. It's a being, but it's not a spiritual being. That's a likeness that we have that God has made with us. We have reasoning and rationing abilities. We are able to think through logically to understand and actually then have conversations and form ideas about things. We can do that. I can catch up with any one of you, and we may have different likes and different interests, but we can have a rational conversation together. We can rationalise and think through something, and even someone might present 
a problem which hopefully is not too detailed, and we can logically think our way through it. That's how we are created. And we differ remarkably from the rest of the world around about us in that way. There is no animal that can develop a spacecraft that can go to the moon and back. It just won't happen, because they're not made like that. We are made like that. That is a likeness we have to God. We can't go and have a discussion with an animal, even though there was that talking horse in that show about 30 years ago. That wasn't really... Was it Ed, the talking horse? Ed. Well, that was just in case you didn't know, that was somebody dubbed on over the top of Ed, and that was, really wasn't Ed the horse talking. You can't have a conversation with a horse. I know there's horse whisperers out there, but that's a different thing altogether. We are made as rational, conversational beings who can actually converse and have that discussion, a likeness of God. Now, the purpose of today isn't to go and trace all those things out. The purpose here is to say um, that we have been uniquely created by God. There's something that God has done with the human race, mankind, as a part totally separate from the rest of his creation. Totally separate. And it sets us apart from all other uh, creation that we see around about us. And it's important we grasp that, that there's something different about us, because that then leads us to the next step of saying, well, what's my purpose? Why have you created me? What's this all about? This other idea here then of likeness or image bearer as well is to be like a reflector of him. To be a reflector of him. To be a reflector of God. In other words, when we see each other, we see a reflection of God in us. And when I say that, I'm not talking about a physical image. Not at all. Because we all look vastly different. Some short, some tall, some dark-skinned, some light-skinned. We are all radically different in so many different ways. So we're not talking here that when we reflect or bear the image of God and somehow we see a part of God in all of us that we're looking physical. No, not at all. It's more we are talking about here that we show a likeness of God through our character traits, through the characteristics of who we are. It's a bit like the saying you might have heard before, he's a bit like a, he's a chip off the old block. Now, when you're talking about that, it's probably a son or a daughter. Call it a daughter. She might have followed in the same path the mother is, and she's a great sower. And she shows these characteristics of sowing. And you might think she's a chip off the old block. That's how it is as we talk about here, showing the character traits as we reflect the image or the likeness of God to each other. And the Bible tells us this very same thing here in the sense of what we are reflecting. And it says it here in Isaiah 43, verse 7. It says this, Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. A really, really tiny little verse. But it tells us a very liberating and life-changing truth. Whom I created. That's God speaking there. Whom I created. God created, but why did you create us, God? What are we created for? And the answer is right there. Who am I created? Stop. For my glory. Whom I created, God creates, and I've created you for my glory. Your purpose and my purpose in life is to glorify God. Pretty clear there what God says. Your purpose and my purpose in life is to glorify God. You might say, what's the word glorify mean? Glorify. Glorify God. 
The word glorify there is meaning to make God look great. To make God look supremely valuable. To make God look like the most precious thing that you have ever discovered. The most precious thing that you have. To make the character of God, as it were, in our lives, to radiate and shine out of who we are. To glorify God by the life that we live. That is our purpose and that is our aim of life. It is to reflect as the image bearers in the likeness of God to radiate out and to shine out and to live this life that makes God look infinitely precious. How does that look? As God is holy, we should reflect holiness. As God is kind, we should reflect kindness. As God is good, we should reflect goodness. As God is just, we should reflect justice. As God is generous, we should reflect generosity. As God is love, we should reflect love. Now that list can go on and on and on as we talk about the character of God. That's what it is to live this life that glorifies God, reflecting this character. We are made especially by God, created by Him, and our purpose is to glorify Him, to make Him look like the most wonderful thing that we have ever discovered or ever, as it were, held in our hearts and held in our minds. And we do this through reflecting out of our character, His character. Now that may just seem really too simple for you, a bit like the answer 42, just glorify God. But if we can just really grasp that, if we can really think about that and let it work its way down into our lives, it really does become a life-changing truth. Because as it does, it really does filter down into everything we do as we allow that to work out of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul the Apostle said this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul's saying the same thing here that God is saying in Isaiah 43, verse 7. Whether you eat, whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. Let the character of God shine and radiate out of you in every aspect of life. So your purpose in the home is to glorify God. Your purpose in the home is to reflect the character of God and let it shine and radiate out of you in the home. Your purpose in every relationship is to glorify God. Your purpose in the workplace is to glorify God. Your purpose in the sporting club is to glorify God. Your purpose in the university or school that you go to is to glorify God. Your purpose in driving the car down the road is to glorify God, even though it's really hard sometimes when people cut you off. But that's our purpose. God's created us to glorify Him when we're driving the car down the road. When we eat a meal at Macca's, despite what you might think of the food, we can glorify God. When you do a lap around the lake walking... Your purpose is to glorify God. It filters down to every aspect of our lives. Now, you might be thinking, well, I was sort of thinking maybe should I do that career or that career or this job or that pursuit. That really doesn't matter so much. It all depends how God has wired you or gifted you. But what sits over all of that is that career, that job, that task or that pursuit, we glorify God in that. We glorify God in that. God has created us uniquely for the purpose of glorifying him. That is why we are created. Just a side note, this this fruit of living 
To glorify God is to enjoy him as well. Psalm 1611, uh, I'll just put this in here as well to show you that, hey, uh, when we're in this relationship with God, it is a relationship of joy. 1611 in uh, Psalm says this, You make me to know the path of life. Path of life? Glorify God. That's my path in life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Can I say, when you live to glorify God, this is a life that uh, has a joy-laden path. Some people might think, glorify God, that sounds like drudgery or drudgery. No, not at all. Not at all. When you seek to live God and glorify Him, it is a life that is filled with joy. It is a life that's difficult, but it's a life that has joy. That's our purpose. That's our purpose. We should all live in such a way that makes God look great and glorifies Him, that overlays our lives. But here's a question. You and I might look around and say, we don't actually see a world that makes God look great. We don't see that. We don't actually see that on every corner of the street or every perhaps household we might go by. We don't always see holiness. We don't always see kindness. We don't always see justice. We don't always see love. We don't always see peace or harmony. We just, you know, we might see little glimpses of it, but we just don't see it as a regular pattern, as something that's happening. In fact, we might say, sometimes I see the opposite to that. What we see is murder. What we see is fighting. What we see is, you know, colossal relationship breakdown. What we see is wars. What we see is suicide bombers. What we see is theft. I don't know if you saw the news last night. In the middle of the afternoon, they, those guys went and smashed up that jewellery store in Melbourne. Right in the middle of the afternoon. Is that glorifying God? It's the opposite. You know, there's a whole host of other things. Bitterness and jealousy. These things, they don't glorify God. We see that. And we've got to ask ourselves, um, what's going on here? Why are we not glorifying God? And even further still, we see people who have no purpose to life, so they go and commit suicide. That doesn't glorify God either. We see a world here that's actually in disorder, not in order. We see a world here that's disrupted. And we have to ask ourselves, what has gone wrong? Why is the world like this? How or why have we lost this purpose? God created us in peace and in harmony to be image bearers of him, to reflect his greatness, to reflect his glory through our character into this world. But we don't see that. We very often see the opposite. Well, the world that God has created has rebelled against God. The world we created has refused to glorify... The world that God's created has refused to glorify him and has chosen to glorify ourselves. It's chosen to make myself as God and to do as I please and not what God has designed me to do or created me to do. We've rejected God's ways. The Bible calls this sin. We've sinned against a good, holy, sovereign creator and said, thanks very much, God, for this life, but I'll live it my way. And hence we get this disorder. God has judged the world for this sin, for this rebellion before him. And part of that judgment is that we are bearing the consequences of this disorder now. We are bearing the consequences here through relationship breakdown and tension and strife and bitterness and jealousy in all sorts of ways. That's part of God's judgment upon us. 
But there's good news. There's really good news in that. God's a gracious and loving God. And God comes to restore this disorder. God comes to restore this disorder and bring us back to the purpose for what we are made for, to glorify him. And he does this through his son, Jesus. 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes, God's own son, God himself, and he comes to restore this disorder. And he does this by a miraculous event. God dies on the cross for us to pay the price of our sins. God brings disorder back into our lives and we were completely bound to this disorder. He brings this disorder back into order through the death of his son, showing incredible love for the creation he's made. So now that through the death of Christ, we can be restored back to how God has rightfully made us to bring glory to his name. So you see, this answer, what is our purpose in life, is completely tied in with where did everything start? Because when we get that, we can also see where it's gone wrong, but we can also see, hey, that's, where we, that's how we were created. That's why we were created. When you have no definite starting point in your life, you cannot find out what your purpose in life is. You just can't find it when that missing part is right out of the puzzle. And this accounts for the lies in the world around about us that are purposeless. People are wandering aimlessly and they've got no idea what this life's all about. Because you think about this, if we think that we've come from some random explosion or our lives are just some random existence, how can we draw any purpose out of that? If it's just some sort of random chance, there's no real starting point here. How can we draw any purpose for living? Well, if we think that somehow in a one in a trillion chance, the two molecules somehow touched and connected and That's where life is. I mean, how can we draw any purpose out of that? There's no divine plan or something that actually drives all that. There's just randomness. There's nothing there that you can anchor yourself to. When the starts point is missing, we've lost the key to finding out why we're here. And that follows on to the age-old question. What is my purpose in life? But when we discover the start point, when we discover that uh, all that exists originates in God that changes absolutely everything. When you truly discover God, you discover the purpose for living. When you truly discover God, you discover the reason for living. So the question I have to ask today is this. What is your reason for living? What is your purpose in life? What are you living for? Is God in the centre of your life and is that your purpose? Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you now that we can uh, come around your word and come around this uh, very deep question of humanity. What is our purpose in life? Lord, today I pray that you will do a work in the hearts of many people in uh, beginning to open up their minds and letting the light of your truth, as it were, come in and penetrate perhaps the confusion and the disorder in our minds. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will do a great work today. uh, Help us to see that we have been created by a divine, loving, sovereign creator who's created us to glorify you. And God, help us to see that even in that there is great joy. There is great joy. Lord, for those who are troubled by that today, for those who have more questions, God, I pray that uh, you'll uh, give them the courage and the ability to ask those questions. 
and to keep the conversation going. God, we ask that, we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, hey, today, you know, it's, it's a big picture talk. Uh, in some ways, it may have opened up more questions than answers. And actually, right now, if you